Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Retina Radio, Back to Practice, resuming care during COVID-19. I'm your host, John Kitchens, and I have really three amazing guests, and actually a first for New Retina Radio. We have three uh, department chairmen or department heads with us on tonight, and uh, good friends of mine. Our subject is going to be focusing on educating the next generation of retina surgeons. Joining me tonight is the chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Sophie Bakri. We have the ophthalmologist-in-chief at the Wills Eye Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Julia Haller. And we have the head of the department at the University of Chicago, or Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Paul Chan. It is August 25th, 2020, and we are six months into the COVID-19 pandemic. There are 23 million confirmed cases worldwide with 815,000 deaths. In the United States, we have 5.7 million cases and 178,000 deaths. Sophie, I'll start off with you. Uh, Minnesota has done really, really well with COVID-19, averaging about 400 cases a day. You've had a mask mandate for over a month. How is it that in in the face of protests and everything that's gone on in Minneapolis, that Minnesota is actually not just surviving this, but actually thriving in this environment? So great question. Um, we don't know the answer to that. Um, as you know, a lot of the protests were outdoors um, in the summer, so that could have helped reduce transmission. Um, we don't know how many people were wearing masks during the protests. And remember that the majority of people were probably quarantined indoors during the protests as well. So I, th I think there's a, there's a number of factors here that may contribute. And how are things in Rochester? What are you finding in your local environment? Are patients fearful? Are they coming in to see you? Is clinic busy, not busy? What are you, what are you experiencing? So during the time that we shut down, we learned a lot about how to operate the clinics safely. And that's not just the whole clinic, but also specifically the Department of Ophthalmology. And I think the message has gotten out to patients and uh, they've been coming back. We're at over 90% um, capacity, which is great. Um, we have a mask mandate and um, for ophthalmology, we actually tape the mask um, to, to the nose, as I'm sure many of you do. And uh, we have hygiene stations everywhere and social distancing. And uh, so far it's, it's worked out really well. That's fantastic. And as far as your clinics and your OR specifically, are they also at 90%? You know, I would say so. I mean, the thing about the operating room, it's probably the safest place to be um, because every patient gets COVID tested. Um, now, if it's an emergency and has to go right away, obviously that's a different issue, but most um, patients um, can actually wait for the test results. Fantastic. So I think that's actually given a lot of patients the confidence to come back and seek care. And are, are you all doing any kind of pre-screening before patients come in, calling patients to get a history? Are you implementing telemedicine in any way? Yeah, so um, we actually have been doing telemedicine um, for quite a long time, you know, several years. And during um, COVID, we, we just did more of it. So we already had a, a, a great system in place. Um, we um, are part of a very large health system where patients come from all across 
um, uh, one or two states. And so we're able to actually work uh, with the ophthalmologists in those health system sites um, to get some testing and, and provide um, care. So that was one of the things that we did. Um, as you know, retina is very, very imaging heavy. So telemedicine does have its challenges. And sometimes, you know, just, just being able to get an OCT test closer to home can just assist with telemedicine. So you have these areas that patients can go to that are not staffed by doctors where they get the imaging and then that imaging is sent on to the retina specialists or do they see an actual doctor in their local area? Yeah, they will see typically an ophthalmologist, but if not, then, you know, an optometrist, um, but, but they will see someone who can provide, you know, eye care and that way with reviewing the images, we can um, get a, get an idea of the, uh, the amount of urgency as well. Okay. So you kind of triage at that point. Julia, I've been really impressed with how low the rates are in Philadelphia. I think I read 98 cases the other day and 3.4% positivity rate, rate for testing. What has Philadelphia been doing that they've been doing so well with COVID-19? Well, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania in general, I think, have had pretty evidence-based leadership, so that's been good. You know, we've had people who actually listen to scientists, unlike other parts of uh, the country. We have, um, we were early adopters, so, I mean, we had a huge surge, right? So March 15th uh, to May 15th was when it peaked. We, we were able to flatten the curve, and we were able to get out of it. Uh, pretty well. I mean, we're still all hanging on by the, you know, waiting to see what, what happens next. But we've had good, if you walk around the streets of Philadelphia, people are wearing masks and uh, we've observed careful social distancing. Wills was one of the first, we were with the first hospitals in town to shut down elective surgery in our network, go to just urgent and emergent uh, surgical procedures, but we stayed open. We had screening. We, we, we went down to one entrance in the hospital. We had screening, temperature testing, uh, masking, uh, hand hygiene, social distancing, taped off, you know, taped off all the, actually in the retina clinic, our well-meaning uh, director like put that yellow murder tape, you know, murder scene tape, you know, like a, like a crime scene on a whole bunch of the chairs. We're going, no, no, this is not the right message. But it did, it did the trick. And uh, we have had, and I'm knocking on wood while I'm saying this, we've had zero cases of coronavirus transmitted either to a patient or to any staff member this whole time. We did about 700 cases in that window from March 15th to May 15th because we were one of the few games in town in the Mid-Atlantic. So we did a lot of surgery and a number of reports are coming out of our experience. One of the sad things in retina, well, of course, was that we saw many more macula off detachments than we had before. Uh, there was a lot more PVR already by the time people ventured it back. And uh, sadly, we did a lot more retinotomies and you know, the kind of things that you would do, you don't like to do in a primary case. Uh, were necessary. I had, um, I have two patients. Fi finally, I'm operating on people who've been at home blind, you know, from, I, I have one 90 year old lady who has large cell lymphoma in both eyes and, and literally couldn't see since March, you know, finally, A, we're making her diagnosis. So she's going to be treated and B, she's going to be able to see, but you know, it's just, it's very, very sad. 
Um, we then had a huge backlog to catch up with, but as you mentioned, you know, the, the, we, the city has been safer, but we've also been hit by the social injustice movement. A um, lot of publicity about the early looting with the first, um, you know, the first marches in Philadelphia, unfortunately, were infiltrated by hoodlums. After that, we had many, many, many peaceful marches, but of course the press likes to show the boarded up windows on Walnut Street. So, you know, people were scared to come in for a lot of reasons, not just coronavirus. So it's been a very stressful time. And I think all of us are seeing that. I know for me, I, I feel like I'm more a psychiatrist than a retina specialist a lot of the time. <laughs> Cause everybody, um, you know, everybody's under a lot of stress and, and bearing a lot of burdens, but we're up to 90, 100% of our care. We feel like we're catching up and moving forward, um, but we, we're, not, we're not taking any of the challenges lightly and we're determined to double down on safety and do whatever we have to do to make it through. What are some of the things that you're doing to maintain that biggest problem, which is the social distancing? Are you allowing families up into the clinic with patients or they have to come up alone? Are you spreading out your clinic schedules? Are you pre-screening patients? Yes. So, John, I mean, that is one of the hardest things. So, you know, people don't like it that patients have to come in alone or that only one person. We, we allow one person in with a patient. But, you know, if somebody comes in with a lot of problems, I mean, think of the shields oncology clinic. You know, typically a whole family and support system would come in with these people who fly in from Kansas with some horrible tumor. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's uh, been heartbreaking, but we have really, really tried to keep, to warn people ahead of time so that they don't get all, you know, because a lot of it is preparation and, and understanding. We've tried to have good signage. Uh, when people make their appointment, we tell them, uh, we, we have videos online saying it's not going to be the same. You know, you're, you're going to have to uh, be screened. Uh, and uh, we screen people multiple times. So when they call to make their appointment uh, for surgery, you know, when they get their time of surgery the day before, they're screened. When they come back in, they're being screened. I think we're the only place in the country that's not COVID testing routinely. Um, and that's because we are just an eye hospital. We don't have coronavirus wards here and our surgery is outpatient and uh, and we've been so successful. So we've had zero testing. Um, now, at, any surgeon is allowed to test and we screen, you know, people are screened effectively three or four times before they come in. Uh, when we look at the asymptomatic testing in our parent, you know, our academic affiliate at Jefferson, and I've also stayed on top of this with our sister institutions. I was just talking to Oliver Shine at Hopkins. Their rate of positivity in asymptomatic patients is 0.5%. So he's, Oliver's figuring that you need to be, um, it's about one in 300,000 uh, chance at Wilmer, but they're testing everybody. So all 300,000 of those patients are tested uh, for that small chance that, uh, and, and we feel that uh, the social distancing, the masking and uh, all the other precautions we take are offsetting that and we're putting our bandwidth in the maximum return on investment processes that keep us safe. So you're not doing testing before surgery we don't have routine testing. Now, any, any surgeon who wants to have testing can certainly yeah, do it. 
but we have not put the onus on the hospital. Now, some of our surgery centers, of course, in New Jersey, for example, Governor Murphy has mandated that uh, people get testing. So that's totally screwed up the surgical flow over there. It's made it very difficult. Uh, I think we're back on track, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicating factor. You know, it's probably our number one thing that is aggravating, at least in our practice, about delaying surgery is they're yeah. always, you know, needing COVID testing. They'll get it someplace outside. The test won't be back. The, the surgery center will cancel it. To your second point, which is patients coming with Mac off. Absolutely. And I think the biggest problem is we were available, but their primary eye care providers weren't. And it just shows you how important this ecosystem is of optometrists and ophthalmologists and everything. Because I heard from so many count fingers, Mac off detachment patients. My, I called my doctor and they were closed. And so I just figured, you know, I don't go to the ER. So they just went blind. And so we too have had that experience with a lot of Mac off patients coming in six weeks after COVID kind of started out. Paul, you're kind of more in the hotbed of things in Chicago. You guys have had a lot of cases there. Uh, also a lot of civil unrest as well. So you kind of are dealing with both of the things that Julia alluded to. Yeah. They just announced a mass mandate and some dining restrictions and things like that. Where are you at in Chicago as far as COVID is concerned? Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, we all, we all face very similar stories, you know, in terms of you get this peak, you know, ours was in May, it went down. And then, you know, we, with the protests and so forth. And so there's a lot of activity here in Chicago. Um, we are starting to see an uptick, uh, but when, when you look at the data, we're not really seeing a lot of deaths associated with COVID, right? So there's an increased number. And I think similar to what Julian and Sophie are mentioning, a lot of it has to do with just the precautions, right? So I think that one fundamental thing that we're learning holistically, all of us, is that we, we are learning to coexist with this, right? We have to, you know, we can't let it paralyze us you know, as, as a profession or even as a society, right? We just have to figure out how to coexist with this. And, you know, obviously, as, as you know, I have a lot of friends in Asia um, and, you know, just learning from them, you know, in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and so forth and seeing how they go about, you know, their day-to-day -day. Um, in Thailand. You know, my mother's in, in quarantine right now. She can't get back to Thailand. She's actually in Hong Kong for the past four months. Um, but they won't even let visitors in without putting them in a military compound you know, for two weeks. And so, Hong Kong's got all issues of its own that are totally unrelated to Corona. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, when you, when you talk about the Chicago story, um, you know, for, for us as a hospital system, as, a, as an infirmary, you know, as a department, um, we, similarly to, to Julia and to Sophie, we're continuing to, to care for our patients, right? And that's the primary goal. And we're continuing to uh, educate our trainees, right? Because that's our mission as well. So I think we've learned a lot during the course of this six month period and we shut it down, right? I go back, I was in, I was in the Aspen meeting, I came back March 6th and I think that that is all we've been dealing with since March 6th, right? At least, you know, from my perspective, every day trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? Pivoting, um, you know, implementing new protocols, you know, you're constantly moving to try to manage this and with, with the, the primary issue being safety, right? So how do we do things in a safe manner? Uh, so similar to Julia, masks on, you know, right away. Everybody was wearing masks. Um, social distancing uh, completely changed our workflows, right? Uh, so, you know, kind of changing the way that we practice, at least in our, in our department, 
um, and then trying to deal with the whole, whole issue about shutting down elective surgeries. How do we get the, the surgeries back that actually need to go? And what we're finding now, and I think all of us are dealing with this, is that patients just were waiting, right? And now they're coming back with worse disease. And I think that from our perspective, we have to continue to find ways to care for them, right? And, and this is where we are. So I think a lot of us are at about 90%. Right. And we've, you know, you can't go from zero to 100, but we've gradually increased our capacity over the course of the past few months. Um, and hopefully we'll stay here. Uh, but then who knows, right? The, the whole issue right now is the uncertainty about what's going to happen. Uh, but I think what we do know, we know how to manage it better. We know how to take these precautions. And collectively, I think as a, as a department, as a profession, you know, one of the great things is that our academy has been extraordinarily proactive and providing us with guidance on how to manage these things um, and taking the safety protocols. So, you know, the, we have a community um, that's very invested in doing this. And I think that's why I see ophthalmology in general uh, at, at this capacity. Yeah, you're so, absolutely the whole right. The thing about elective really annoyed me because there's not <laughs> much, I mean, yes, occasionally there's some Botox for wrinkles, but really our specialty takes care of very important issues. And I'm so worried about the 80 year old ladies with cataracts at home who are slipping and falling because they can't see the steps and they're going to break their hip and go right downhill. Yes, it's elective, but you know, the, the public understanding of elective uh, in terms of its applicability to ophthalmology has been a little bit of an issue for, for us, uh, particularly in our, in our outlying surgical network where a lot of our primary stuff is done, you know, the cataracts and things like that. You know, it seems like we just overreacted, and and I, rightfully so. Don't think that I'm someone who's going to downplay this, but I think there was this big fear that we were going to need all of these facilities for PPE and for ICUs and ventilators, and that never really materialized, thank goodness. And I think that fear has passed, and now it's just this grumbling, chronic kind of state of COVID that we just worry about patients individually. Well, look I, like you were gonna add yeah, that. no, I, I think it depends, right? I mean, I, I think that there was definitely a PPE strain, and I think this was across well, New York. The country. I mean, New, New York, York for sure. killed. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt, right? And you know, I left New York five years ago, um, but you know, we we actually had Jack Chaffee come on and and talk to our department, and it was really interesting. I mean, just seeing what they went through, and uh, that you know, that's real. And I think that every department around the country saw what was happening. And even our hospital system, you know, we were constantly monitoring the PPE, right? And I'm, I'm sure you, Sophie, and, and, and Julia were, were dealing with the same issues. And now we're at a state where everything is green, which is great, but what if there is another surge, right? What do we do then? I mean, so I'm curious, Sophie, how are you, how are you managing the PPE issues? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the hospital obviously keeps tabs on PPE and keeps tabs on, you know, different suppliers. But I think one has to also consider the availability of our anesthesiology colleagues and mm -hmm. CRNAs as well. Um, I, th I think that's a big issue because they're the ones at the front lines, um, you know, at, on the ICUs. And so that's one of the reasons why we may have to ramp down if there is what we call a second surge, I guess, combined with the flu, um, as well as um, what I understand there to be some national shortages potentially um, and um, you know, redistribution of PPE where it's needed. 
So I, I just think we have to be, I mean, we're, we're ready to ramp down if we need to. We're hoping obviously that we don't have to ramp down as much as we did the first time. Um, but I think now we have a better understanding and, and you know, that, that initial sort of March, April shutdown was really an investment in uh, regrouping um, when it comes to things like PPE and, and safety precautions. I, you know, I, that's, you're absolutely on, exactly on target. And, and what um, Paul was saying a little bit earlier was, is something that was very helpful to me, which was the information that came out of Singapore and Hong Kong, and then early out of the Mass General in particular in Boston, where they found that just surgical masks protected the workforce. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, that message was lost in the hysteria because everybody felt like they needed a um, N95. And Al Ali Khan at Wills did a survey of second year fellows and their two biggest concerns, they said they had a huge high stress level. They had uh, over 50% of them had come into contact with somebody who was COVID positive working in the hospital. This is in the early, this is in the first two months of the surge. Their two concerns was one, they weren't gonna get enough cases to do their training and they were gonna finish their second year with you know, going out into practice and they were really gonna be in bad shape, which I think is, was a legitimate concern. And then number two, if they, didn't, if they didn't have ready access to lots of N95s, they were nervous. And, and that's despite the fact that most of them weren't being exposed to aerosol generated procedures. And most of them, and we know from the data from Hong Kong, as Atul Gawande said in a couple of his New Yorker pieces, you know, really, surgical masks for, for most things are, are very safe, but everybody still had this incredible anxiety. So one of the things, Paul, to your point, uh, what our, our head of audiovisual, uh, Jack Scully says, I have COVID respect, but I don't have COVID paranoia. And I think that's a little bit of the switch. I mean, we still have to have respect. And, and to me, the hardest part of the respect is the long agonizing grind where everybody's got PPE fatigue, <laughs> and yet we have maybe a year. I mean, who knows how long before we can have the vaccines that to, you know to feel like we're we're we have a safety cushion that we don't have now. So anyway, I I've I've been interested in the psychology of feeling safe and in the evidence base and um, and. And we really got a lot of good information from our colleagues uh, in the Far East, and then also the people who had so much trouble in Boston and New York. And I think that's why Philadelphia has come out of this. I mean, we never ran out of ventilators. We never ran out of, um, we, I mean, we did really well, but we had a lot of sick patients, but we were able to take care of them. And actually we were over-prepared for them. We gave all our ventilators and all our surgery centers to the state. We said, take them put people on those, um, you know, put people on our anesthesia machines, you've got them, not one single one got used. That's fantastic. You know, you brought this up, Julian, uh, we could go on and on about this forever, but fellows, you mentioned that your fellows were most concerned about getting enough cases. How did they end up? Do you think your second year fellows actually ended up doing well enough as far as uh, cases were concerned by the end of everything? Well, I texted them right before this call to ask them about their surgical logs. So I have it right now. And um, they would have been on track for about 1250, 1500 cases. And they ended up with more like 900. So they were under 1000. Um, but they felt like that 
was good. I see Tom Jenkins says he had 771 vitrectomies, 120 buckles as primary with others as secondary. So, I mean, partly That's because we were one of the few games in town from, you know, New York down to probably Baltimore. I, you know, we, we still got through that period and then we tried to give them, we tried to all pass off all the cases in, in June when we were coming, you know, so they would have a, a, a big spurt at the end. So I think they all felt good. And my own observation is they did really well, but it was not, it was not as much as they would have normally gotten. Those are amazing numbers. Sophie, how did people do at Mayo? Did the fellows leave feeling competent and getting enough cases? Yeah, so what you have to remember is that, you know, a fellow is with us for two years. And really it was just a little bit of a slowdown, you know, a couple of months at the end. And so in the end, you know, I think everybody has done great. Um, it's, it's, it's a much smaller percentage. Um, and I think that, you know, when fellows graduate and they start their practice, most of them are not operating in a silo. They will have, you know, senior partners who are totally understanding of the situation and are more willing um, to come in and, and help when it's, um, when it's a tough case or, or they need some advice. And, and that's what teamwork is all about. And I'm confident that our retina colleagues um, would all um, help out if there was ever a concern. But, you know, so the question is, how many cases does one need to be competent? You know, probably just a couple of hundred. I mean, Paul, we, uh, we wrote a paper about that a, a while ago when we surveyed. That's, um, what, that's when I was fellows. much younger. <laughs> You're both children. <laughs> so, so, Paul, what is that number? How many do people need to do? And did your fellows get enough cases towards the end here to leave their second year happy? Yeah, this, this is a really interesting question because, you know, it, it goes into this conversation of the whole competency issue, right, which the ASRS is actually actively involved with in terms of metrics and things like that and the AEPO. And then what's the COVID effect, right? So I, I, I agree with Sophie and I'm sure Julia agrees with this. It, it's sort of a, do numbers matter? And I think it depends on who the surgeon is and who the learner is. And I think to a certain extent, numbers do matter, but I think the fundamental issue is how do we test competency? Um, I'll just sort of share, I don't have a specific number. I, I, I'd be insincere if I said you need 250, right? I, I can't tell you exactly that that is a specific number that means you are competent. But I think that the way that we look at each individual fellow um, has to be in some way uh, measured, right? And, and or, you know, we're, we have a standard across our profession about, you know, what does it mean to say that somebody is going to be competent as a surgeon in addition to even medical retina standards, right? What does it mean to be a competent medical retina specialist? I will say, you know, and I, I'll, I'll joke about this, Julia is sending out the Wills numbers and being a Philadelphian and being, you know, kind of a Wills guy because my parents were there. Absolutely. You know, my, our numbers are being, yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> you know, at, 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 the, at Illinois Ioneer, you know, we, we do very well in terms of our surgical volume. We do complicated cases. That's another thing is like, what's your case mix? But our usual numbers are what Julia's COVID numbers are, right? So that's you know, pretty good, Paul. That's yeah. a listen. Seven hundred cases, eight hundred cases, nine hundred cases. Amazing. That's a yeah. Great we're I mean, we're at about like five to six hundred for each fellow. We have three fellows total. So you know, it's it's one of these things, and they go, they go up great. You know, they they come out well trained. Um, you know, I did the same thing this morning, but I did it with our current fellows. I texted them and said, "Well, how many? What's your pace right now?" Um, and 
our seniors right now are probably on pace to do about 500 cases, right? But our, you know, the question is, is that enough compared to, they're, they're about down 10% most likely is what they're gonna be down. Um, and then what happens to the first year class? But this, this no doubt has affected our, you know, our, uh, you know, our practices and our educational enterprise. And, and it's also affected them from a meeting, you know, oh, yeah. grand rounds, all of those things have kind of changed fundamentally. How are your out second year fellows, which now is the time when they're going to Academy and ASRS and they're meeting potential, you know, job connections and whatnot. How are they adapting to that? What are you finding, Paul? Are people yeah, doing I mean, it virtually or are they going in person? Everything's virtual. Uh, you know, and I think that this is across the board around the country, right? I don't, I don't think anyone's really having an, uh, a true in-person meeting. You know, people are having hybrid. And th I think this is something that a lot of us miss, right? I mean, we miss seeing our colleagues, we miss seeing our, our friends in person. And, you know, I, I love meetings as much as anyone. I mean, I, as much as I love being home and seeing my children grow up, um, I, I do think that there is a certain power to being together collectively. And I think as, you know, John, you know this, I mean, when, when we, we, start, we sort of went through the whole the buckle journey, um, it was because a lot of us met at one of these fellows forums, right? So that, that spirit, that community that we have in the retina world is priceless. So we'll get it back. Sophie, how are your, how are your second year fellows finding job opportunities? A lot of it is virtual. I think more and more people are deciding where they want to live. You know, they're looking for a city that they have uh, family in or that they, that they know very well. And they are just contacting many of the practices in those cities. And, and I agree with, um, with Paul. I think the first meetings are virtual. Um, but once the initial screenings are done, more in-person uh, meetings are happening, obviously, in a, in a socially distanced uh, masked way. But in terms of educational opportunities, you know, I agree, we all miss the, the in-person um, networking, and there's just an intangible there. But I think we've learned how to conduct virtual meetings well. I think we now understand that our fellows can learn from great retina specialists anywhere in the world. And I mean, I'm always forwarding them you know, opportunities to learn. Many have free registration now, you know, with these virtual meetings because of COVID. The Retina Society is starting tonight. Tonight. Yes, tonight. yes. And you know what I love about Retina Society? It's doing it over multiple days. So it's not saying you need to tune in over the next four days to four hours of lecture a day. It's saying, okay, we'll do something tonight. Then in a month, we'll do something. Very many opportunities. I think we're learning a lot. I think we really are. How, so how are you guys going to interview your fellows? Are you going to do it on Zoom? And um, I mean, are you, I mean, we're thinking, we always end up talking to places where people trained because our friends there are the ones we really count on for the, you know, thumbs up. Because these are people we live with very intensely for two years. So we want them to be the kind of person that's got the interpersonal skills that we can wake up every morning and go to the OR and see, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're Zooming, Julia. We're, we're setting up Zoom interviews and, and that's how we're going to interview people. But it is a lot of word of mouth. It depends on who, a lot of times it's people who we've trained that their programs sent us good people. 
and they say, hey, this is a guy that's just like Drew Somerville. You'll love him. And so you say, okay, we'll definitely take this guy then. Sophie, what are you guys doing with that regard? Yes. Are you Zooming? You know, I think we actually have to Zoom. I think that they're the guidelines definitely for residency. And I'm pretty sure I got an email recently about um, it having to be that way uh, for the fellowship. So Zooming, I guess, is the great equalizer. But I think that being that there's now no cost um, to the fellows for interviewing, they'll be applying to many more programs. And the question is, are they going to apply to more programs? And then we interview more um, fellows, right? In which case, it's a lot more of everyone's time doing this. Um, but I think that recommendations from people that we know are priceless. And I just hope that, you know, everybody is as candid as I'm going to be with my colleagues when they ask me, um, you know, for a recommendation. Yeah, I'm honest. But I, you know, but I think it does, it does, it, it disadvantages the upstart kid, you know, who's just like small program, but doesn't have the network. It, it, it's, it, 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 there are some things that I think are going to be operating here. I'll, I'll be interested to, to see. Um, I mean, some people have said it might actually be better because you know how sometimes people will just be kind of glad hander joke tellers and you end up picking them and then it's a big mistake because they're not solid. <laughs> this, this hasn't happened to us so much in the fellowship, but more in residency, you know, we'll like somebody will be kind of a face man by the, when he actually gets there, but maybe that person won't make it because zoom will demand that we actually look at people more substantively. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see. I think it is going to impact because it's a different thing having somebody walk into a room and talk to you than it is to be looking at them on, the, on, your, on your computer screen. That's interesting. I'm wondering if having the virtual platform for interviews is an advantage for people who are more charismatic, right? Because I, I think that I find these, you know, I've done, I've been interviewed before on, on these, these platforms. And you always wonder, you know, I'm on, I'm on TV and I'm looking at this. this you story. have been? You mean even before coronavirus? Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, we've had job interviews like this. Um, you know, the sort of first pass uh, of, of an interview in, in the group setting. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a skill set that you have to learn. Um, and, the, you know, to, what, to Sophie's point, the and you APO. look really good, Paul. I'm just saying, you know. I think you've you got a great back. You got a big, great backdrop. The back thing. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's great. You know yeah. what I always find to be of great interest is all those little interactions that the fellow candidates have with other people because they can put on a great one-on-one -on -one interview with us. But I love hearing from our secretaries, yeah. our techs that are showing them around. Or the fellows go out to dinner with the candidates the night before and they'll come in the next day and they'll say, don't even waste your time with this person, you know, and you'll go, all right, listen, X them off. We are doing nothing with that person because the fellow got turned off at dinner by him. Then we don't want to do anything with that person. And we are going to miss that greatly. Interestingly, you guys are all chairmen. So you are responsible for finding residents. Now, you know, the people recommending these residents as fellows, how are you doing it with the residency? Sophie, how do you find the best way to discern residents? Because you can't trust the letters and things like that on those, those med students. 
Yeah. So first of all, I will just admit that I don't believe any of us have started this process yet. I think we are going to learn a lot through this process and we're going to learn what is good and what is bad and what we may want to keep remnants of this for, you know, the post-COVID time. Good point. Good point. So, you know, we, we haven't done it yet. We're going to obviously do our best shot. Many programs, including ours, have put, you know, virtual open houses, you know, online live and then online and then we'll have some kind of uh, open house or event during the interviews followed by the interviews and then there's questions about whether you should have a social zoom room for the fellows to socialize with the residents you know how real that is how authentic it is i mean it's debatable i mean do you even bother doing it it's it just doesn't even come close right to dinner with, with residents but, but we're doing our best and, um, you know, you're right, we tend not to know the medical students as well as we do the residents applying for a fellowship. But again, I think we have to make a lot of phone calls, we have to cast a wide net, we have to use our network outside of retina even more. And, you know, just just do our very best. But the good news is, is that most medical students will match. And most um, residents will match for fellowship. So Julia, how are you, you guys? going to manage that residency selection process, which is so critical for Wills? Well, we're, I mean, we're thinking about it a lot. And, um, you know, a lot of people are already out of the gate with, um, uh, I think they call it fizzy um, videos. <laughs> and, you know, we're like, oh, quick, quick, get them in. We need to make a video about Wills. You know, let's capture the je ne sais quoi. <laughs> um, and, and that's, I mean, that's a disadvantage because a place like ours is so much about esprit de corps and how much fun the residents are having playing ping pong. And so, you know, if you don't come in and see, see them, you know, just kidding around together, it, I mean, I think you do, you lose some of that. Uh, I, we're, JP Dunn was saying the other day that he thinks there's so many great programs that if you look like in the last five years, they've just skyrocketed, but they're little programs, but you know, a lot of great applicants would go, oh my God, this is fabulous once they saw it, but it, the buzz is not out there. So he thinks it's a disadvantage for those places. And ditto, I think for the skyrocketing student from a place where you don't have a lot of connections, you know, because they're, they're places that we've never taken a resident from, but you know, maybe the perfect resident is out there and we would have taken them, you know, had we, so I worry about that. But we're spending a lot of time thinking about what platform we use. We are mindful of the AUPO guidelines. You know, they are just cracking down. They're going, you guys can't have, uh, you know, send out free beverages and everybody joins us on Saturday. <laughs> no, you know, they're, I mean, so they're trying to control that and we're trying to abide by those guidelines. Um, but at the same time, we're trying to be warm and welcoming and, and talk about how much fun we have in Philadelphia and the incredible volume of patients and pathology we see here and how we love to work together. But, you know, we're worried about it. I, I mean, we, we're worried about it. We're thinking about it a lot. Paul, advice on how you're going to do residency? Residency interviews or just residency? Yeah, residency interviews. I think residency in general is going to have some of the issues we already talked about, yeah. but your residency interview process. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, So one, I think we're all subscribing to the Zoom platform, right? It has to be well-coordinated. One of the things that, just to comment, I agree with all of the above, what Julia and Sophie mentioned. Um, one of the things that we're, we're missing is also the fact that a lot of students go through these rotations, right? These, you get to understand the culture of the program. 
which I think really matters. Are you a good fit? And is the program a good fit for you? Uh, so some programs like ours, you know, I have a, I'm fortunate to have really good PD and a, and a good uh, uh, medical student director who put together this virtual elective, right? So, and they have these weekly uh, discussions with the residents and so forth that come through. It's gonna be hard, right? And, you know, the question is, they, they did put a cap on the number of programs, you know, people can sort of interview at and so forth, but still it's gonna be hard to really get a, a feel for what's happening. Right. So I think that to a certain extent, it's going to be more important for people to do their due diligence now, right? As opposed to just saying, great, I got an interview. I'm going to deal with all those questions ahead of time. You know, and, and you know, you know, there's a student from, from Toledo, uh, who, uh, Bilal, you know, who's been doing a lot of this for the medical students. I think he's been doing a great job trying to get information for everybody. But I think right now, people have to start asking questions and getting the information that they need even though it does seem early, right? Even though you haven't gotten an interview. Um, and I think we have to do the same. No, you're absolutely right. You really do see some go-getters out there as far as you refer to Bilal and just others that are standing out even further, you know, from, from this and just finding ways to succeed. All right, my last round of questions here for you guys centers around two brand new chairmen and one experienced chairman. So Sophie, Question for you, what is your greatest challenge you've faced since taking over as chairman at Mayo? So I think that the, the real big challenge is that, I guess I didn't have time to prepare. I was appointed and then the job started that day. And so <laughs> for my first three months, it's been about really um, catching up, you know, getting data, seeing where our baseline is and kind of planning what it is that we're going to do and where we need to be, what needs to be done immediately and, um, and, and what can wait. And, and, and really okay, kind of You've never been unprepared for anything in your life. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's that. so true. That is 100%. <laughs> so I think that's the greatest challenge. It's like, well, the job starts now. And then we start, you know, looking at, at where our practice, our research, education, where we want to be. And also, you know, communicating, you know, the current state with the faculty. And it's going to be now about, you know, communicating my vision, but hopefully it's not my vision. Everyone buys into this vision so that we can, um, you know, really move our department forward. So the Paul, 90 days are, are up. So things should be getting better. That's fantastic. Paul, what has been your biggest surprise as a new chairman? COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jan January 16th, you know, I, I, I took over as the full-time head, and then six weeks later, we were dealing with this. But I, but I will say, we were talking about this beforehand. Um, you know, in in the sort of umbrella or or the cloud of a crisis, right, or or just dealing with this uncertainty. Uh, what I think that holistically, what makes a department great are the faculty and the people there. And I've seen this COVID nineteen bring people together in a way that, you know, is 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 difficult to do. Um, so I've been fortunate in that sense. I think that I, I'm very lucky to have faculty that um, have really come together who are excellent and outstanding in what they do, but have come together truly as a team to make this keep, you know, to make us prosper. Um, so I would, that, I'll leave it at that. That's wonderful and positive. And then finally, Julia, I'm going to give you a little bit of a different question. You're in the Hall of Fame of Chairman two young chairmen, what are the piece of advice that you would give Sophie and Paul as they start out 
on their career as a chairman? Well, I think you can't communicate enough. Um, and if I had to pick two qualities, particularly in coronavirus that I think are important, they would be two qualities that both of these two extraordinary young people have in common. And that is one, empathy. So really understanding when somebody's melting down in front of you, where are they coming from? <laughs> and uh, both Sophie and Paul are two of the most empathetic people I think you could possibly get. And that goes for patient care, but it also goes for managing their faculty. And then second, equanimity. You know, it goes back to Sir William Osler and uh, he called it equanimitas. And that in this incredible firestorm is I think an absolutely crucial quality for leadership uh, to be calm, to be evidence-based, to take a deep breath. And when somebody's panicking, talk them down from their ledge. <laughs> and also to rally the troops. You know, Paul just saying that he's so proud of the, the leadership and uh, how everybody stepped up, I mean, that's, that's equanimity. And he's probably had a lot of people melt down that he's not telling us about, uh, but he's, he's putting this wonderful face on it because that is the truth at his great, great institution overall. And that's the message that he wants to get out. And, and, and you know, both of these guys have both empathy and uh, equanimity, and I think it's going to make them really great chairs for the ages. That is a wonderful way to end this. I will have to say, Julia, the only question I have is, why did you not run for president? <laughs> it would have been such a no-brainer. Um, you would have won by a landslide, but I, I think you've got enough on your plate. I'd also like to congratulate Paul. I might check cleared, but John. Yeah, Edmund Guy Francis Chan was born on Saturday, and Paul looks way too awake to have a child that was born on Saturday. For those of you that joined us, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank Sophie and Paul and Julia, uh, and tune in next week for the next episode of New Retina Radio Back to Practice. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Great questions. Thank you. Great thank you. Good luck, everybody. Stay safe. Thanks, Julia. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.